tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stop. Take a car. Huh? What do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to The Cult-Worthy Classic. Welcome back, everybody. We've taken a little bit of a break from the classic series while I was starting a whole new other podcast and devoting time to that and focusing on the Cultworthy Cinema podcast. But I didn't want to leave you for too long. So to bring a very special guest to the show to talk about our favorite Cultworthy classic films made before 1970, Discoveries of the Year, my friend and amazing podcast host, Anthony of the Cult Movies Podcast. Anthony, how you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me back. And, uh, you know, this is my wheelhouse, classic movies and, and especially discoveries. Uh, is my It's my favorite time of year to talk about all the, you know, the cool stuff that, that we got to see for the first time in the previous year. So this is very exciting for me. Well, I mean, you watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of movies. What I don't do that often is jump into films made before 1970 that I haven't seen unless they are recommended to me. Like, I'm so filled up with my other podcast calendar where it's a lot of cult films, grindhouse films. I am kind of stuck in the 70s right now, and I absolutely love it. But -hmm. that's why I take episodes like this. I've listened to a bunch of your older ones, stuff from Danny Perry's books, stuff that Pure Cinema puts out, stuff that Video Archives puts out, And I use that as my roadmap to these films made before 1970 that I think need to be in my library. I just cataloged my 5,000th film on Letterboxd yesterday. I was aiming for 5,000 for the end of 2022. Didn't quite make it. It happened yesterday. And all those ones that I logged were classic films like this. Nice. Yeah, it's... um, before I started uh, or discovered Danny Perry, I hardly ever watched older movies. And it, it wasn't until I got my first apartment in my, you know, I don't know, I was, was 22, 23. And um, we had cable, which I didn't have growing up. And so, uh, you know, it was AMC is that's when they were still playing movies and then TCM. And I was watching these and, and I would talk to my mom about them. And then years and years and years later, I get my hand on Danny's books and I I think, oh, my God, this is incredible. And then Pure Cinema starts up right after that. Um, And so it's, you know, my life in movies for the past five or six years has been um, like a crash course education. Um, And, you know, I hardly find myself watching, you know, I watched 14 2022 releases mm-hmm. last year and you know most of everything else was uh 1979 or earlier yeah 
Um, so, you know, I, but, uh, getting back like to the twenties and some of the early thirties, that's still, um, I'm still lagging there. And so this year I want to definitely, um, check out way more silent films than I, than I have before. Well, and that's kind of the point of, of this particular offshoot of, of my main show, everything made before 1970. I'm lucky enough to have a really good friend who, uh, used to be a film archivist for Warner Brothers back in the day. And he is very knowledgeable about the silent era and the pre-code era and the golden era. So he's been on this particular show, I think, more than anyone else. And he brings those to the table and that knowledge. So he's the one that kind of got me back into it. But let me, let me, let me ask you this. For me, I've almost kind of um, equated it to as I've gotten older, I've liked maybe certain cheeses better, certain wines better, certain beers better, things that I didn't like as a kid. I was a pretentious little film nerd kid in high school that watched a lot of classic film, a lot of French New Wave cinema, and I didn't understand it and I didn't like it, but I told people I did because I wanted to fit the aesthetic that was supposed to be me, that was supposed to be this version of me I was projecting. And to my dismay, that put me off of this particular type of cinema for a long time, especially this was like the mid to late 90s. You know, Tarantino's big, the new Artur wave is big, you've got PTA coming out, you've got Wes Anderson coming out, and it was really easy for a person my age, I think you're like a year younger than me, Mm -hmm. to jump on that bandwagon. And easily 20 plus years went by before I really dipped my toes back into that waters. And I was really pleased and surprised that I enjoyed these films more than I did then. Not even enjoyed them. I felt like there was a piece of my life that was missing and now it was back. That's kind of what that did to me. Did you have anything similar to that when you were like younger? Um, it was, I, you know, I, I remember being at my friend Ben Johnson's house one day and he says, uh, you got to check out this, this weird movie that, that I watched this weekend. I have the VHS of it. And I said, yeah, I'm into it. And he whips out, uh, Aronofsky's pie. Yeah. And so, and then my friend Brent was obsessed with Pulp Fiction had just come out. Um, and so we would watch Pulp Fiction every week. And then, you know, once Ben introduced me to Pi, it was like I, you know, I needed to talk about that and introduce that movie to other people. And so, yeah, I'm with you. Like, it was always um, like older films didn't exist. It was whatever uh, was kind of current and popular at the time. Um And it wasn't until I got my, like I was saying, my first apartment and my mom got me this um this four dvd set of uh old clint eastwood westerns nice so hang them high and then the man with no name trilogy and that's when i was like and, and you know those are what uh, 60s and 70s yeah late 60s early um, 70s for sure but that was like the first time i ever sat down and like paid attention and enjoyed a movie before, you know, 1985. Um, and then it, it was just sort of, you know, it just uh, it's kind of snowballed slowly at first. Um, but yeah, I mean, I didn't get into older movies till, till recent. You know, my 
yeah, yeah. Re- like and and really i didn't really get into older movies until you know the past five years honestly yeah and so I, I you saying. know i i i'm i'm playing catch-up i'm always going to play catch-up and so you know to people like you talking about just logged my five five thousandth movie i'm like jesus like <laughs> maybe i've seen five thousand movies um but i certainly don't remember them and they're uh certainly not uh worth remembering you know it was a bunch of popcorn junk that i watched when i was a kid yeah stuff that i just don't care about uh but what really inspires me to keep digging and keep watching are older movies because the best thing about watching older movies is is uh discovering where the you know the newer stuff mm-hmm. comes from it's right? the roadmap. So, it's it's the exactly. blueprint that things that we love so dear we can go back and be like oh my god did this filmmaker that i love watch this film hey he probably did or maybe someone explained a scene to him or her and it just stuck in their head and became just part of that persona that they developed and made its way into the film. And I feel we're going to get some of that today in these films that we brought. So this is my first discovery episode I've ever done on either show. Um, usually when I, when I do a double feature or something like that, I've already arranged it with the guests or I've decided what the concept is, but because I love listening to discovery shows and I've watched so many films this year and I've listened to your show and some other shows that I, I'm excited to talk about films that I haven't maybe seen. That's why I decided to do a classic discovery episode. That's why you're here. And since you are my distinguished guest, I'm going to allow you to go first with your first cult-worthy classic discovery of 2022. All right. I think, um, I, am I going in, let's say 52. I think I'm going in a uh, chronological, awesome. maybe even uh, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> with bend of the river first. Uh, the Anthony Mann Western from 1952 starring James Stewart. Um, it's one of, you know, several that, that Jimmy Stewart did with Anthony Mann. And um, it's, it's sort of, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart's the beginning of his dark period, quote unquote, his dark period before he starts working with, especially with Hitchcock and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because he, you know, he did, you know, sort of the, the, happy-go-lucky family fair type of stuff, you know, early in his career. Um, I mean, which, which all those movies are great, of course. Um, uh, but you know, shop around the corner and, and uh, Philadelphia story. And, yeah. yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah. Exactly. You know, all the super, super classics. Right. Um, but I recently did an episode with Cribs and Funderburg from the pink smoke. And we talked about, um, Gary Cooper, man of the West. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'd never watched any other Anthony Mann movies. And so I watched, um, three of his Jimmy Stewart Westerns and all, all three of them. One of them is on, uh, was on another discovery list I did with unsung horrors, Na- the naked spur, which was great. Yeah. That's the one I'd seen before this one for sure. Right. Uh, I, I, and I watched Winchester 73, which was great. Um, but Bend of the River, Bend of the River was one that I probably first heard about from Brian and Elric on on a PCP. And the way Brian described, I'll never forget listening to it. I was sitting in my car and I mean, I remember exactly where I was uh, <laughs> when I heard it. And like this, he painted this this perfect picture of this film. 
and it had been living in my head. And I talk a lot about uh, movies that take a long time for you to see, but they hold this, this, you know, this place, this bar, they're on this pedestal that the longer you wait to see it, you become more and more nervous because you think there's no way this movie is going to be able to reach these uh, unattainable, like lofty heights that I've set, uh, how great I think this thing is going to be. And Bender the River met that bar. It, it landed exactly where that pedestal was. Starring James Stewart as Glenn McClintock, Indian fighter, trailblazer, a tower of strength in the wilderness. Come on, keep going. Arthur Kennedy, whose smile hid the desperation of a hunted man. Julia Adams, who made the mistake of loving two men. Rock Hudson, who gambled with cards and with lives. You're smart. Anything you paid for that food will give you ten times what it cost of your brain. And what was great about Brian's description is that he just sort of touched on what the movie's about. And I'll talk about it here in a second, but... I didn't, I wasn't expecting everything that happens. And so basically what happens is Jimmy Stewart is sort of leading this wagon train um, up to the Pacific Northwest uh, full of good, wholesome people, families. And, and so to get to, to get up to the Oregon territory and they're going to start a new life up there. So he's leading them through the mountains uh, and then they have to go through a town where they're going to rent a steamship that will carry their supplies up there uh, and the, the supplies will arrive, you know, a month, maybe a few weeks after the people have arrived there. And so it turns out they were swindled in town and now Jimmy Stewart kind of has to fight for these people's honors and like, uh, and get, get their, their supplies. And uh, it's very exciting. He's teamed alongside rock Hudson in this Mm -hmm. and, this is so this is two Rock Hudson movies on this list. <laughs> I just realized. Uh, but also um, who? Oh, gosh. Is it uh, Arthur Kennedy? Yeah. Arthur Kennedy plays Cole. And so uh, Kennedy was also in uh, The Naked Spur. Mm-hmm. And they're so great together in that. And here they're so great. And Arthur Kennedy's character he just keeps you guessing the entire, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? He, uh, it's, it's so good. Uh, but my God, and Anthony Mann, his thing is he shot on location. And mm-hmm. so we have these absolutely beautiful vistas, these widescreen technical color shots of, you know, Northern California up in the Pacific Northwest. And it's breathtaking. It is so gorgeous just to look at uh but then it's full of these fabulous performances what a movie oh i tell you what this movie did blow me away for several reasons for one yes it's probably now one of my favorite james stewart performances like you said this is the beginning of his dark period he is dark in this film what i love about his character is as it goes along you learn that he has had a very rough past and this kind of mission to bring these wholesome people to the promised land is kind of like his act of redemption, right? Cole's character, what I like about him is I don't consider him a bad guy or a good guy. He's a man of opportunity. And the way he plays that, it's it makes him so charming when he wants to be. It also makes him menacing when he wants to be. I, I really got some Vic Morrow vibes from his performance 
I think that Vic Mara was probably too young, 1952, to play this part. But when you go back and watch films like King Creole, you'll see there's a very similar kind of energy that Kennedy brings that reminded me of Vic Morrow. And that's what I really yeah. liked about this particular performance. The chemistry between the two of them, it almost feels like you're watching a gangster movie, right? It's there, there's this, this code of honor between the two of them. They know they both have pasts, but they're not going to rat each other out because they're both on this, this mission to find a better life. And Kennedy's character can't help but take the opportunity and go back to the low road. And despite all the other things that happen in the film, because there are love interests that kind of pop in and out, there are um, characters that are colorful, kind of reminded me of maybe some old John Ford films where you'll get like the colorful drunk, but this film really is about the, the dynamic between those two. Yeah. Rock Hudson, early role for him. He's kind of a throwaway character, just kind of be charming and a pretty face. But I like the energy he brought. I liked his character development and, and resolution. Yeah. It yeah. was great. But what I think I liked about this film the most, apart from those two performances, the main ones, is everything that happens off screen is far more interesting than happens on screen. So, for example, while they are waiting for their supplies from Portland that were supposed to get shipped up. It's been several months now. What they don't realize is that the gold rush has happened while they're waiting for these supplies, and Portland turns on its head. What once was a nice little civil town is now like this town of debauchery and right. and excess, and flour costs $1,000 when it used to cost ten. All that fun stuff we don't see, but when we see the town a few months later, it gives us the opportunity to create a backstory in our head of what the hell happened in this three or four months. And I loved that. I loved the way that was presented. So thank you for bringing this one to me because you were right. Brian was right. This really is, and I'm not a huge Western guy. This is a Western that I think will surprise avid haters of Westerns, especially from the fifties. Yeah. The, I, I think that the Anthony Mann Westerns, especially the Anthony Mann, Jimmy Stewart Westerns, they're different, and and I wrote I wrote an article over at F this movie about uh, the characters that Jimmy Stewart played for Anthony Mann, and that they weren't your typical, uh, you know, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood stereotypical man's man type of Western cowboy guy. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's Western guy was vulnerable and like wore his emotions on his sleeve and wasn't afraid to cry or, or, you know, be emotional. Um, and I mean, Jimmy Stewart is the perfect person to be able to play those types of characters. So anyways, I agree. Like if, if you don't think you like Westerns, this might be a good inroad for you. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm definitely going to recommend it to anyone that I talk to about movies. Um, especially from that period. So for my first one, and if you've noticed from my list and people who are listening will, will kind of get it, I like dark films. I like dark characters. I like brooding characters. And I didn't really think about it when I put this list together. And as I was kind of reviewing the films for tonight, I'm like, oh my God, these are really dark and disturbing characters and dark and disturbing films. But I, I think they're under the radar enough that it's going to be a fun surprise for the people who want to go and seek them out. So yeah. the one I'm starting first with is 1959's The Bloody Brew. The crazy, mixed-up world of the beat generation. A world of distorted values and frenzied emotions where lawlessness and immorality are a way of life. This is Nico's world, where the only law is Nico's law. And this is Nico, 
two-time Academy Award nominee, and Emmy Award winner, Peter Falk, in the most shocking role of his career. I don't talk my kicks. I do them. Nico, the sadistic leader of the bloody... Bro- Man, so this one, I just... It was on Tubi. I saw Peter Falk's name. I had just finished watching Mikey and Nikki. And I was like, you know what? I'm in the mood for more Peter Falk because I like Peter Falk comedies. I like the in-laws, you know? I like I like him as Columbo. I like him when he's a little bit quirky. I like him in Murder by Death. But I really hadn't experienced much Peter Falk on the darker side, the Mikey and Nikki side. Yeah. So when I saw that this was an early performance of him, I'm like, all right, I'm sold. It's 80 minutes long. It's free. I'm just going to see where it brings me. I was pleasantly surprised with this one. And it also kind of covers an era of the late 50s, early 60s that we don't see represented a lot in film unless it's done as a caricature. And that's the beatnik culture. Yeah. When we see beatniks in movies, we usually see them as like the turtleneck wearing coffee house poet people. They're usually played for laughs, played for jokes. But this one kind of explores the darker and more nihilistic side of that culture that kind of reminds me of things that we saw later in like the early to mid-90s of these Gen X films where there was all these brooding characters that had a real nihilistic attitude. It reminded me of the 1950s version of the films that I kind of grew up with in my teen years. So the story is Peter Falk is this hipsterish beatnik guy named Nico who's kind of a small-time drug peddler for these other drug peddlers in you know this little part of it's filmed in Canada but it feels like it's New York and it's all really kind of a facade but he buys into this culture of beatnik nihilism so much that it's become his persona he sees an old man die in front of him from a heart attack and it makes him start kind of realizing that life is meaningless. He's starting to buy into his own bullshit. And by doing that, he starts developing this need to see more, to prove in all these philosophical teachings and musings that he gives to his friends why life is meaningless. So at this party at one of the drug dealers' houses or apartments that they're you know holding it at while this guy's out of town, they essentially arrange a murder of someone who's going to be very untraceable, a delivery boy, someone who they think no one's going to miss, and they grind up some glass, they put it in a hamburger, and they feed it to this kid, and this kid ends up leaving the party and dying, and his brother now is trying to find out who murdered him. That is like the jumping off point. Where it goes from there is actually really interesting because it starts poking holes. It almost feels relevant today where the police are inept, and they really don't care, and they are really just walking over evidence. They are looking over and looking past obvious details. So it's up to the brother to solve the case, which brings him head to head with Peter Falk's Nico. And then where it goes from there, you have to watch for yourself. What's fascinating to me about this film? A, Peter Falk's performance, the way that he can so just subtly deliver these lines of nihilistic and philosophical musings. They almost sound like Shakespeare, you know, like a, a, a philosopher from either ancient Greece reciting Shakespeare. He speaks in almost an iambic pentameter in some scenes, yeah. and it creates a very alluring villain. It's his total nihilistic approach to everything that makes him such a compelling villain, in my in my opinion. What did you think about this film? Boy, what a great movie. I, uh, I had never heard of it. 
it totally reminds me of uh, another movie that's on your list that uh, we'll eventually get to that I had seen before. Uh-huh. What struck me is so last season on my show uh, with Lance and Erica from Unsung Horrors, we covered uh, Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. And so you have that and you have um, a bucket of blood, right? As sort of, uh, at least for me, my two go-to beatnik movies, the two that I've probably the only two that I've seen of, of this. And like you're saying, like it's, it's a very um, probably not, I don't know if there's a ton of movies like about beatnik uh, characters, but so I kept thinking of, wow, Roger Corman's version, uh, you know, a bucket of blood, especially is like the, the, the comedy version mm-hmm. of the bloody brood, the bloody brood was so dark and what really stuck out to me you you taught you you talked about it was peter falk and how he sort of waxes well waxes nihilistic right his uh, the dialogue that julian rothman uh, has written for this character just rolls off of peter falk's tongue and you know this is young peter falk this is before he's uh you know pretty marble mouthed and, right. and gravelly right and um, he's a good looking younger gentleman, um, unmistakable with the eye, yeah. right? <laughs> you still know it's Peter Falk, um, because of a, his, his beauty, uh, and two, uh, the way he delivers his words, um, he is, uh, that translates to charisma. Yes. And it's not, you know, it, it, it's not like uh, my guy, Marjo Gortner, who I think is the most charismatic person in the entire world. Um, it's not that type of charisma. It's this like cool. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Daddy. Oh, type of charisma. Uh, but when you listen and pay attention to his words, you're like, this guy's a freaking psychopath. It's scary. Yes. I mean, so it was kind of loosely based off of the um, Leopold and Loeb murder cases, the 1924, just like the thrill colors. Rope is kind of based on a very similar story, you know, just like, could we plan a murder and could we get away with it? What What I liked about how this really was approached and why it feels like a product of its time and a relic of its time is the fact that films like this weren't widely seen when it came out. You know, these were drive-in movies. These were grindhouse movies. These weren't things that were advertised. So you either saw a film like this on accident or you saw a film like this as part of a double feature or a middle act. It didn't, it didn't have an audience at the time, which is why I feel like so many of us haven't heard about it until the advent of internet and streaming. That is why we have conversations like this, because to me, this is a, a missing gem, a missing piece of, of cinema history that more people need to discover because, A, it's going to make you think completely different about Peter Falk's performances to start so strong, so young in a film like this, but also that the beatnik culture wasn't as silly and goofy and Doby Gillis as we all think it was, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, and I just looked at, I didn't realize there's a, a Kino Blu-ray of this. It's a, uh, yeah, this is one that I definitely need to own. Um, and thank God it is streaming on Tubi. Good looking quality. Yeah. Um, was impressed. I mean, it looks, it, it looks great. And yeah, totally. What, I mean, how many people have logged this? Not that this is the end all be all the letterbox, <laughs> but 276 p- 
people logged in on Letterboxd. That's a really low number for yeah. Letterboxd. Uh, so yeah, hopefully this gets the word out. What a what a tremendous picture. I'm so glad you liked it because I wasn't sure about this one. As I'm getting to know your style and listen to your show more, I'm like, I think Anthony might dig this one. So I'm glad you did. Yeah, yeah. What's next on your list, my friend? Okay, let's go with... Uh... Well, you know, we're just getting out of the holidays. Let's talk about a Christmas movie here. <laughs> uh, this is called The Holly and the Ivy, another Kino Lorber Blu-ray, Kino Classics, mm-hmm. uh, from 1952, directed by George Moore O'Farrell. Brought to you this Christmas, a forgotten British gem, The Holly and the Ivy, a story of family frailties that surface at the Christmas family reunion. I always do the same thing at Christmas. I go and stay with some cousins of mine called Gregory in Norfolk. Gregory, that's an Irish name. Yes, but you wouldn't know him. He's a parson. Mm. What's you laughing at? I was laughing at the idea of you spending Christmas at a vicarage. <laughs> you come on down for that letter. I want to talk no, to David, you. No, David, I must finish. They'll be here soon. Jenny, I've heard. It's all fixed. Siberia. It's like Siberia. Did you forget we were coming or what? Nick, dear, how nice to see you. I didn't think you'd be here. Let me take that. What are you hanging around here for? I thought you'd be overseas by now. Maggie, and, um, my... You know, I, my, um taste in art whether it be books or music or uh or movies um is sort of seasonal and so when we get into the holiday season november december for some reason i have no idea why i love watching oppressively heavy (laughs) family dramas which like, this definitely is. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, like, uh, so my, my friend Matt Bledsoe of Film Feast coined the term sad Vember. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's sort of the running joke uh, among a lot of us. Like, you know, it's it's sad Vember season. So let's watch the saddest movies you can imagine. And boy, oh boy, am I glad to always find a new one to add to the repertoire. Right. And the Holly and the Ivy was... Um, Maybe the biggest surprise. No, I, I, that, I take that back. Uh, the other movie that's on this list is the biggest surprise of the year. This is the second biggest surprise of the year. I thought this was going to be. I found it on, um, you know, somebody's letterbox list of movies that TCM plays during their Christmas marathons. Mm-hmm. And I like those Christmas marathons because they're not traditionally Christmas movies. They're movies set around the holidays. Right. And. um this is, I mean, this is a Christmas movie. It ends on Christmas Day. You know, it doesn't have to be a Christmas movie. So what it is, this this family um, is getting together. Uh, the patriarch of the family is a minister at, a, at this church in England, uh, this little village in England. And the family's getting together for the holidays. And so you have the daughter who sort of, uh, gave up her life to stay with her dad and take care of him because, you know, he's, he's becoming a little senile. He's really goofy. He's really fun. Ralph Richardson is yeah, the he's dad. Great. So good. Very fun. And like, uh, well, I'll, I'll get there in a second. Uh, and then you have, Do- um, Denholm Elliott, I almost said <laughs> Domino Gleason, Denholm <laughs> Elliott as the son who is on leave from the military. Mm-hmm. And so he's home for the holidays. And then there's this third daughter who, um, and this is fascinating to me, played by Margaret Layton. Margaret Layton doesn't come into the movie till like exactly halfway. Yeah, about halfway. And this is, 
it's like an 83 minute movie. And she's like, we could say she's the main character and she doesn't come in till halfway through the movie. Mm -hmm. And so she's the one that got away, ran away, wanted to get away from the oppressive father. And he's not really oppressive, but like didn't want, she wanted something more exciting. So she moves to the big city and they come back um, and everyone's shocked when she arrives back and, and things are tense. Um, and one, one night, it's so funny. Uh, one night, Denim Elliott and Margaret Layton go out uh, and they get drunk, uh, which is, you know, a no, no, cause dad's a minister. And then uh, Denim Elliott gets back and I, for the life of me, I can't remember the line, but it's very funny. His reaction to when his dad is like, where have you been? Are you drunk? <laughs> and you know he's just like yeah who so what you know i'm old enough and he, but it's very funny the way he delivers it but but really it all leads up to the ending the sort of uh big blow up between father and daughter between ralph richardson and margaret layton and um things are revealed and i, I won't spoil that here um and you find out you know why maybe she has stayed away for so long mm-hmm. and and it's very touching. Here's what I love about the Holly and the Ivy is that there isn't a bad guy in this movie. You don't, uh, the, the credits roll and you don't end up hating Ralph Richardson. I think typically in a story like this, you would walk away and the, the, the patriarchal figure, the matriarchal figure ends up being the bad guy. Yeah. But no, no one is the bad guy here and and things aren't you know tied up with a with a bow it's a little imp- i mean it, it's 1952 mm-hmm. so it's it's still a happy ending but things are still up in the air nothing is really resolved and those are my favorite types of endings because it's just it's more you know it's realism right um but oh, i was not expecting to be absolutely floored by this movie the way I was and uh, God love you TCM. Gosh, they play some <laughs> amazing stuff all year long, of course, but like, especially during the holidays, they whip out these movies that I'd never heard of. Yeah. And here, here it is on a discoveries list. Yeah. I mean, I'd never heard of it either. I caught it on internet archive and it was a pretty decent version. What I took from this movie is it reminded me of a checkoff play. It reminded me of like a Russian family drama or I remember mama. It's got, it's got those kind of vibes where the enemy, like you said, the villain of this film isn't the family. It's a lifelong of poor communication. Yeah. Yes. Like yes. The, the, the lack of communication between all these, these family members and letting their own personal dramas overwhelm the love that the family should have. And that's where, like, in my opinion, everyone is kind of the bad guy because they've all put their own personal choices and personal dilemmas ahead of the family because they're not talking about it. They're not openly discussing. There is a tragedy in the family that no one knows about for years, apparently until the sister shows up who they think isn't showing up because she says she has the flu, but she shows up. And like you said, things are revealed. If you find out that, you know, maybe the dad wasn't as a religious zealot as they thought he was this whole time. 
because they never talked about it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's one of those kind of family dramas. Now, the fact that this was based on a play, it makes me think two things. Number one, the use of music and the inclusion of holiday spirit in this film in like the intercuts between the scenes yeah. keeps it really lively and from letting itself collapse. I can't even imagine what this particular story would be like if you were watching it on stage without musical interludes, without (laughs) editing, and without the cuts that they bring to make it a little bit more energetic, a little more flowing. I'd feel that you'd want to just like step in front of a taxi cab the second you (laughs) left the theater. Imagining seeing this as a play would be so depressing in my opinion. But like you said, the way that they kind of just tie loosely with a bow, the ending the way that they really kind of put the holidays and the Christmas carols into the movie. Yeah. It, it, it makes it feel like a holiday film and the family kind of has a redemption. I'm not sure if the play feels that way. That would be my biggest question. I wonder what the play actually felt like. Yeah. You know, being a playwright, I tend to write very um, sad, depressing <laughs> things because those are my favorite types. I, I love to see those things live because being able to see someone in like 10 feet in front of you actually trying to convey that sort of energy um and be that sad for real right in front of you uh i love to see so i would god i would kill to see this on stage this is i feel like the holly and the ivy is the um i mean it's like the poster child of um uh, assuming right yeah you know the 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 saying uh you know happens when when you assume something you make an ass out of you and Mm me and that's what there's no communication and everyone's like oh you think you feel that way you and and it's such a human thing to um not be a good communicator especially with with your family Mm -hmm. with your loved ones you know i think that's um, I, I love seeing stories about that because it's so real. We, I mean, God, you know, my wife and I, we've been together for almost 20 years and, you know, we still have communication problems and you, you're constantly working on that. And so to be able to see that on film in this medium that I love so much, I love it. It's yeah. great. Yeah. A great one to bring. I would have never caught this one unless you had put it on the list. So again, yeah. thank you for that. Now, to take us out of the holiday spirit, (laughs) I'm jumping into one that I've heard about for years and have just been waiting for it to show up on streaming. And that one is 1967's The Incident. So this is a repeated sock in the stomach, right? 
the whole length of the movie, it doesn't let you breathe. It doesn't let you relax. I'm going to say that my butthole was tightly clenched the entire movie <laughs> because if there's one thing that I like in a film is when they put you in a confined space that you as the audience member don't get to leave. You don't get to intercut out of a space. So let's say like taking a Phelan one, two, three, amazing thriller, but you're bouncing yep. back and forth between Walter yes. Matthau back to the, the gangs, the, the criminals in the, in the train. This doesn't do it to you. This one, you have to stay in the train car. So the story of this one, and it, it's weird because it kind of feels like an Altman film sometimes where you have all of these different characters with different walks of life with very progressive for the time, 1967, you have a man who's homosexual. You have an African-American couple. You've yep. got all these different things that are going on with all these different people, and it gives you time to be able to relate to them throughout the film. It's not like sticking in a central character. The central characters right. are these two just villainous assholes. You've seen the Dutch film Funny Games, right? Uh, yes. This kind of reminds me of that kind of dynamic where you just really have these villainous thrill seekers that take over a train car filled with people who are just trying to get home in Queens. And it's one of those things where the tension just keeps building as they keep pushing and pushing and pushing this thrill-seeking experience, kind of the opposite of what Peter Falk does in The Bloody Brew. This isn't like a slow burn nihilistic this is these two characters absolutely 100% full tilt psychotic. And this early performance by Martin Sheen, man, he scared the hell out of me. And I've never seen him play a character like this ever since. We're yeah. used to him playing more subdued. I mean, I think of him as, you know, in Apocalypse Now. Think of him as the president in The Dead Zone. You know, he, he's a, right. a great actor to play a subdued sense of villainy. In this, he is just over-the-top psychotic, and it absolutely just creates this nonstop, 100-minute-long sense of dread in a subway car, in a train car. Right. Yeah, so when I saw this for the first time, it just really blew my mind, and I watched it again, and I just loved it even more. I couldn't believe that I hadn't experienced this film yet, and I only heard it talked about for years and not giving it the credit of like, like you hear when people talk about a film, you're like, oh, that sounds good. Maybe you'll be fine. No, 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 no. Yeah. This one killed me. And talk about the cast. You've got Bo Bridges. You've got Ed McMahon. You've got Thelma Ritter, Donna Mills, Jack Guilford, Brock Peters, and Ruby D. I love Brock Peters, but with Ruby D in there, I kind of wish it would have been um, oh, Ozzy Davis. Davis. But Brock Peters, I mean, just this was made just like right after uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. So it really right. did make a lot of sense to have him in there as like probably, apart from the homosexual man, the a most oppressed group of people on this train. Right. Yeah, I uh, so we talked about this on cult movies. Uh, I use this as a pairing for um, I use this as a pairing for uh, the warriors. Oh, um, interesting. You know, a good kind of uh, New York city movie, I feel like, but yeah, this is terrifying. Tony Masani is, is absolutely terrifying. And you're exactly right. Martin Sheen is this is uh, I, I've never seen anything like this. We've seen him, you know, unhinged in apocalypse now and, 
And we've seen sort of, you know, an evil side like you were talking about in the dead zone a little bit, but he's not unhinged in this. This he's he's just he's straight up terrifying. He's he's so scary. But it's it's man, I love your Altman comparison because it's this uh this sort of actor's troupe um all in uh you know a literal bottle in a tube. Mm-hmm. Right. And man, wow. It's I you know, it, it's hard not to draw comparisons to the take of Pelham one, two, three, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. But they're two completely different types of movies. And and you're exactly right. How Pelham gives us that sort of levity, especially with Mathhouse comedy, but jumping back and forth between the 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 cops um and then the transit authorities and then and then inside um with Robert Shaw and, and those guys. But uh here we're stuck. We're stuck with them. And then, you know, gosh, when Bo Bridges, is it Bo Bridges who yeah. gets up? Yeah. Right. And you're just like, no, don't be the hero. <laughs> Come on, guy. Don't. You, this is not going to end well. And uh, wow. How, what an incredibly tense movie. I love that it does. Like I said, there is a progressiveness to it as it reflects on different um, ideologies and lifestyles and how they were perceived in that time but i also think that it is an early example of the not only kind of toxic masculinity portrayed by these two guys but also how fragile it is you know once their facade is broken especially with martin sheen's character you see them for what they really are and and i think that is what kind of gives the film some redemption and not being a total just a downer at the end. It, it lets you realize that, hey, you know, the bad guys don't always win and the bad guys aren't always as strong. And, and it, it really kind of, when they bring it up in the train, it's like there's so many of us and only two of them. Like that, that idea plays with you throughout the whole film that there are enough people on this train to overpower it. The problem is not everyone is on the same level on a social dynamic. You know, like there are characters that don't want to participate because of their bias, because of their racism. They can't see themselves joining with an African-American family or a homosexual. So it plays on a deeper level when you watch it a second time of like, okay, the bad guys aren't just the people that are holding them hostage. It's still even still existing social ideas that keep people afraid of each other, separated from each other, it would be their eventual downfall if it wasn't for the person that steps up, you know? Right. And I love how unassuming the title is too, because uh, let's face it, these two are holding uh, a whole slew of people hostage. And so this is an act of terrorism, essentially. Uh, Yet the title is The The Incident, incident. (laughs) right? Um, and so going into it, I mean, you can Tony Masani on the, uh, the key art, it already looks terrifying, but like going into it, if, if you don't read anything about it, you know, you think, oh, okay, it's not going to be that bad. Oh my God. That ended up being the most, you know, tense movie I've ever seen in my life. It uh-huh. really is one of the most tense movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, one of my favorite discoveries this year for sure. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. what you got, man? Okay. So let's talk about, this is the most surprising movie Ooh. of the year and so what okay i did a discoveries episode for unsung horrors and we did five there i'm doing one here we did five here 
And then I did one for my show. We recorded just last night and there's 10 there. And then we did a Patreon uh, with <laughs> five sort of, you know, uh, uh, throwaways or whatever you want to call them, backups. And so I had a, a list of 25, which is great because yeah. every year, you know, I, I write my list for F this movie and I'm stuck with just 10. But no, this year I get to talk about 25 different movies and they they all impacted me greatly and differently. This one was the most surprising. Oh, so anyways, my list that I wrote for F this movie, which is going to come out here the, the first week of January, is my uh, official, unofficial top 10 discoveries. Okay. And, so this, and it's sort of an amalgam between the three podcasts, right? I, a little from here, a little from there, a little from the other. This one is on that list, on the, quote, official list, and it's the most surprising. I, 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 Even when I watched it, I was like, that was really good. But when it came, you know, December 31st is when I really started to buckle down on my list. I was like, this has to go on the list. It has to go on the, like, the official list. And it is Edward Dean's Shack Out on 101. Yes. From 1955. Oh, I thought I heard a train go by. Oh, it's you and the weights. Come on, pick up the weights, will you? Okay. You're a little late today, aren't you? Yeah. Hey, that looks great. That's a beautiful-looking set of muscles. How many times have I told you not to call them muscles? You want to sound like an amateur? Call them pecs. Well, what's the difference? Big deal. The fact is you got them. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you, you have them too. If you only work out. A couple of licks and you quit for the day. I'm very happy with my... And guys. I'd never heard of this movie, uh, but earlier uh, in 2022, we got a chance to hang out with Millie DeCherico, uh, who's the former uh, TCM Underground programmer. Cool. And her and Katoy Murray wrote the first official TCM underground book and um and it's 50 50 movies that they they uh showed on TCM underground and like she said it was impossible to pick 50 but they you know that's all they had space for and shack out on 101 was one of those movies and so um i'd seen probably half of the movies they'd written about mm-hmm. Um, and then the other half, uh, you know, like remember my name was one of them, um, which I watched that's, that's on my official list, but shack out on one-on-one, like I said, never heard of it before it was in the book. Um, and I, I had to read the, the book, which I normally don't do unless I've seen the movies, but I, I wanted to read the book before we talked to Millie. And, um, I was like, I have to see this movie. So it stars Terry Moore, Frank Lovejoy. Keenan Wynn, Lee Marvin, uh, Whit Bissell is in there. Uh, Len Lesser, Uncle Leo from Seinfeld is mm-hmm. in there for a little bit. And it's another one of these bottle movies. And it's, uh, you know, I guess you could call it a Red Scare movie. It's about um, spies selling nuclear codes to the Russians. And so, you know, you have these communist traitors and this diner the shack out on the 101 highway in California mm-hmm. uh, is sort of like home base for these guys. And I, I'm not even going to say who's, who's the good and who's the bad yeah. because you, <laughs> you, you, you got to watch. Um, but Keenan Wynn 
owns this diner. Terry Moore's the waitress and uh, she's in a relationship. I don't know if she's married to or fiance or whatever it is to Frank Lovejoy, uh, who's in, you know, just all the noirs of Mm -hmm. the 50s. Um, And then (laughs) Lee Marvin is a real piece of shit as the the cook, the greasy spoon cook. And there's this really weird thing with him and Len Lesser at the beginning where they each put an end of a nasty dish rag in their mouths. And then they're like, oh, oh, like playing tug of war. It's really strange. They're playing tug of war. while They're punching the shit out of each other. Right, exactly. I, I mean, that's how the movie essentially opens. And I was bought in and it looked like they were really punching the shit well, out of each other. It's Lee Marvin. So they probably were beating the shit out of each other. Uh, that's the type of guy he was. But anyways, it's, you know, it it's really a bottle movie. They do go out on the beach a little bit. Uh, we see Terry Moore and Frank Lovejoy down on the beach and they're, they're talking about the future and, you know, where have you been? And blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's all like, that's not the important part. I, I don't care about their relationship. Uh, it's all about the action that happens in this diner. And then when it's revealed, who's who um, you kind of know who's who, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I don't want to spoil it. You watch it for yourselves. And then shit gets real, really fast. And it becomes this this pressure cooker. Um, and I honestly didn't know how it was going to end, to be to be frank. Keenan Wynn is, as much as I love everybody else in this movie, Keenan Wynn completely stole the movie for me. He is just so... Him and Whit Bissell are these two... You know, he's sort of a um, Keenan Wynn is sort of the patriarchal figure, um, kind of this father figure to Terry Moore. And like, you know, he looks after her and and he gives these people, you know, he gives Lee Marvin a job. and um, But he's just, you know, sort of this silly avuncular type of character and brings the much needed levity because this could be very dark, very gloomy the entire, you know, 80 minutes. Uh, but Keenan Wynn, who I love in absolutely everything he's in, um, brings such a joy to this movie. And there's there's this scene where him and Whit Bissell have these harpoon guns. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's just so almost out of place in this sort of Red Scare movie, but it is so needed and so goddamn funny. Uh, but I, I had no idea, you know, like I said, when I watched it, I was like, yeah, this movie's really good. I love it. But mm-hmm. then end of year comes. I'm like, it, ha- I, I cannot forgive it, this movie. I think about it constantly. It goes on the list. So, I mean, I've only heard the title and I think it's because I heard Scorsese talk about it either in Scorsese on Scorsese or in his uh, personal journey through American films. I just remember him talking about it. I've never sought it out. And you are 100% right. This feels like Dr. Strangelove's like, little cousin, right? It feels like it's written by Terry Southern, but Terry Southern's like first draft of something. It's got all the elements that we would look for in a film like Strangelove, but set in a smaller scale. But you've got the same bombastic characters, but also a, a very like you said, kind of a slow burn pressure cooker until things blow up where I feel like it really has a Terry Southern feel to it is there's a goddamn scene in there where Keenan Wynn and Lee Marvin are lifting weights in the (laughs) diner. 
And they're like slapping each other in the stomach and they're trying to show who's got the bigger muscles and they're having like this weightlifting contest in the diner. And I was like, where the hell is this scene from? What? This is not what we just saw in all the all of the exposition 20 minutes before it. And then when you start realizing like, oh, well, this is a spy movie. This is a Red Scare movie that leads up into an action movie. I'm telling you, man, this was surprising as hell for me. And I loved every single second of it because just when it was about to take itself serious, it takes a ridiculous left-hand turn and lets you have some fun with it. Because, I mean, here's the thing. I get it. You don't know who's a spy for most of the film. You don't know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who's selling what. You just know that there are alternative motives to pretty much every single character that enters the diner. Almost yep. like a game of Clue. Like, everyone's got a motive. It's just, what is that motive? And I absolutely love that. And man, this might be my favorite Lee Marvin performance of all time. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, I just watched Prime Cut for the first time. So that's that's pretty, he's pretty cool in that too. But yeah, what I, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm obviously speechless. I'm stuttering here. I don't, I, I never knew that I was going to come across this, you know, just, cheaply made you know obviously it was just you know let's make something and throw it out into the you know as a b picture in the drive-ins uh this thing that that burrowed itself into my brain and honest to god i think about it almost every single day it's what a crazy movie i love it (laughs) yeah thank you for bringing this one to the table for sure i would say that I mean, and I think I watched it on uh, either Internet Archive or YouTube, and it was a pretty good transfer. I I was impressed by it. So, yeah, seek this out. If you listen to my show, if you listen to Cult Movies Pod, check this out. It's it definitely fits the aesthetic that we that we treasure and cherish in all of our conversations. For sure. Yep. (laughs) All right. So the next one that I'm bringing to the story is a nice, short and sweet little B-movie noir, and that is... 1946's The Chase. How do you like that for an honest guy? I don't. Silly law-abiding jerk. How do you like that? He comes all the way out here just because he found it. You know, you ought to get a medal. Gino, go buy him a medal. Thanks. I got a medal. Oh. XGI, huh? Yes, I was in the Navy. I like him. I want to do something for him. Give him a sawbuck. That's the trouble with you, Gino. You have no appreciation for honesty. Tell me something. What made you bring the wallet back? Well, I don't know. Now that I'm here, I wonder myself. I guess I'm just a sucker. I just found this one, again, scrolling through Tubi, man. It wasn't recommended to me. I'd never heard of it. I just saw Peter Laurie's name in the title. And like, hey, it's not that long. 86 minutes. Let's give it a shot. It was one of those films that it's it's totally a B-movie, right? It's totally a B-noir flick kind of like Detour, and I think that's why I jumped on it because I'm a huge fan of Detour. It's my favorite kind of B-movie film noir. Yeah. And for 1946, this film explores violent elements that I had not seen 
in a film since like pre-code movies. The fact that this is not a pre-code movie, it feels like it should be. There are scenes of disturbing violence in this that really shocked me for 1946. So the story is, you've got this soldier. His name is Chuck Scott. He's a veteran, and he suffers from these crazy post-traumatic stress dreams and fantasies where he feels like sometimes he doesn't know what's real and what's imagined. And I think that was pretty progressive for a character to be like that back in 1946. People weren't really talking. I mean, they might have talked about shell shock from the war, but they really weren't talking about a displaced reality because of post-traumatic stress. So for it to be featured in a film like this, I thought was fascinating because you don't see that a lot. He's hired to be a chauffeur by this guy named Roman, and he's kind of like a gangster, mobster, criminal underlord who's got the best henchman in the business. He's got Gino, played by Peter Lorre, at probably peak Peter Lorre, right? It's before he became like the kind of overweight goofball. He's still kind of slim. He's got that Casablanca feel, but more sinister, absolutely fantastic so he comes on to be this guy's chauffeur and this guy's girl roman's girl kind of flirts with him she she goes out on a drive every day she has him drive him around she can tell that she's not happy with the relationship and she kind of convinces him to help her escape roman and make their way to cuba once they do this that's kind of when things go the noir kind of sinister action senses now he becomes a hunted man but what you think is going to be just a, a man on the run or on the lamb kind of story really turns into a film of mind games and trickery and red herrings and double crosses that like leads you back to the, the rest of the, the story where you go back. But what I thought was fascinating about this film is how tight it was for its running time, how sinister the characters were, but also the MacGuffins and implements they put into the story to make it more fascinating. For example, Roman has a car that this guy drives him around in that he plays this kind of weird thrill-seeker game where he's got an accelerator pedal in the back. So he can like push a little button, and it gives him a gas pedal, and he just puts it to the metal and makes Chuck steer through oncoming trains, sharp turns, much to Peter Lorre's dismay, he's in the back going, oh my God, don't do this again. Like, I think that's what made me like this movie so much and these characters is that every single person is unpredictable in their own manic and unique way. Like, no one really is on a team. Everyone kind of has their own little quirks that make them interesting on their own. This is the one I did not see. Mm. And you know what? It's, it's funny. Uh, I said I had run out of time on Sunday and I was looking at, I thought it was the 1966 one. Oh. I think it's 1966. And um, that one is like over two hours. This one is under 90 minutes. And the funny thing is I would have had time <laughs> to watch this one. So damn it. Um, I, I've never seen any Arthur Ripley movies. I don't know if I've ever seen um, uh, Robert Cummings. He was in sons of the desert. It looks yeah. like, but um <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen, you know, I've seen a bunch of Peter Lorre, of course, but this sounds fascinating. It really is, is a it, fascinating film. Is it, um, 
I mean, it sounds like there's some funny stuff in it, or or no? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. there there is a lot of hilarious stuff, and so, and it's kind of cool that you haven't seen it because I didn't give way too much away. I gave you all the 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 recipes that you need to have a a better experience watching it, knowing what to expect from some of these characters. Sure, but there are some scenes of torture, and there are some scenes of uh, disposal of people that are absolutely terrifying. Now, because this is not a pre-code movie, it did not play on wide circuits because production codes kept it out of major theaters, out of major runnings. And so that's why it is a B-movie. That's why it is kind of unknown. And much like Detour has found more of an audience later on. Sure. But I I would say that if you enjoyed Detour, you would enjoy this one as well because they both have that same kind of energy. They both have that same kind of, uh, how can you even call him a protagonist? He's just kind of like a sad sap, but this guy at least has some real reasons to be sad. His mind's messed up. So he is very easily manipulated, much like the main character in Detour. So if you had like a sad sap double feature, this would be a great double feature to have it in. <laughs> I think, honest to God, I think this might have been on my short list for um, pairing recommendations when we did Detour um, a few months ago with Matt Bledsoe. Um, because, because it's not on any, it's 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 on my watch list, mm-hmm. but it's not. Uh, you know, you can go down on Letterbox and see if it's in any list of your friends or it's in no one's list. Uh, so I'm wondering how and or why it's on my watch list. And I think maybe it was because I was sort of, in my opinion, as much as I love Detour, I think it's the ultimate sad bastard movie. <laughs> um, and and that was sort of the theme I was going with with my pairing. So maybe the chase uh, was on the short list for that. Because uh, I, man, God love a, short, a sad bastard movie. Right. Especially with a femme fatale and some very just dark and depressing turns of circumstance. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I'm not going to give too much more away from that one. I just say, go seek it out. And it's pretty much everywhere. It's on Paramount plus it's on Tubi. I guarantee it's on YouTube. It's just one of those, those B movie noir films that just kind of fell off the earth and is slowly making its way back. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I I love that. You know, we're in a, in a uh, golden age of, um, uh, obviously like physical media, but also just, you know, the internet age, being able to see things that we wouldn't normally be able to see. So yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Okay, man, we're getting closer. What's your next one? All right. My fourth, um, I'm going to go with, this is another one that was really surprising. I didn't, um, I didn't realize I was going to love it that much. So uh, we, every now and then Vinny and Kristen and I on cult movies will do, um, an episode from Danny Perry's cult movie stars. And one of us will pick one of the stars he writes about. And then the other two, each of us will pick a movie Mm -hmm. of that star. And then we'll get together and talk about those two movies. And so we had done a Paula Prentice episode earlier, uh, last year. And what happens is when we do those, I, I tend to watch as much of, that actor's filmography as possible. Okay, that's a good way to do it. I, I watched I watched a bunch of Paula Prentice movies, and I mean, for, she's wow. Talk about charisma. She's yes. just the best. Love her. Um, she just seems like. Don't you want to be her friend? She just seems like the coolest person in the world. 
Um, but so here is the second Rock Hudson movie that I had alluded to earlier, and it's called Man's Favorite Sport, question mark. Rock Hudson stars in Man's Favorite Sport. Now then, Major Phipps, what were we talking about? What kind of fish I should go after up at the lake? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I suggest you go for trout. Trout. Mm -hmm. About 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning would be your best time. Water should be around 68 degrees. 68 degrees. Mm -hmm. What kind of a lure and how deep? Just under the surface and use either a Colorado spinner or a super duper. Amazing. Willoughby, this is your lucky day. It is? Absolutely. You are entering the fishing tournament at Lake Wakapuji. Oh, horse feather. Oh, my. You've never really been fishing never. in your whole life. Now, you just yank that back as hard as you can, but before you do that... Meet Roger Willoughby. And it's from Howard Hawks, of all people. Of all the man's people. filmography is... <laughs> is fascinating he could do it all obviously um and it stars rock hudson and paula prentice and rock hudson uh, another king of charisma plays this guy who works at like a sporting goods store you know like a cabela's or um maybe you guys don't have cabela's like a, a pro bass pro shop whatever mm -hmm. you know hunting fishing type of thing and so he works, he's a sales of floor salesman at this shop and he's written like the how to fishing book and it's flying off the shelves and like, he's made a name for himself. And, uh, Paula Prentice is, I don't know, she's like a literary agent or something mm -hmm. is tasked with getting rock Hudson out to like this major fishing competition um and like doing you know speeches and book signings and like you know making an appearance and like it's it's going to be his weekend type of thing uh well the catch is he rock hudson doesn't really know a damn thing about hunting and fishing <laughs> he's fed all of that from his colleague at the store um and so he has to sort of fake his way throughout this weekend. And, you know, it's a, it develops a romantic relationship with Paul Apprentice. And there's a very funny scene in this movie where Rock Hudson is, he's engaged. He's not engaged. It's, it's not really solidified, but uh, he's involved with this other woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's the jealous type. Well, he's away uh, on this weekend thing. And uh, maybe feelings are being developed between him and Paul Apprentice. And then the jealous girlfriend ends up showing up and it, there's this, you know, Paul Apprentice and Rock Hudson keep finding themselves in these precarious positions. Right. And uh, it's a very, very funny, very cute romantic comedy. You know, it, it all kind of leads up to, well, I hate you. I hate you. You know, I'm going to go to my corner, you'll go to your corner, and then, of course, they get back together. Not to spoil it, but come on, it's a, you know, that's how it's going to end up. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, between Rock Hudson and Paul Apprentice in one movie, like, you, it's possible you could die from charm. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's so charming. It is so adorable. Um, you know, it's a Paul Apprentice, absolutely beautiful. Rock Hudson absolutely beautiful yes. so you know, it's, it's not a a bad movie to watch in that respect um and they're both funny as hell uh this is 
this might be the one because you know i've seen rock hudson in seconds uh which is really good but yeah. very strange movie yeah. um you know he's in uh um giant right like you know he's played these very serious roles most you know i I've, i think i've only seen rock hudson in serious roles oh see and I, i've only i mean i've seen those movies but to me he is the charming romantic comedy guy him and his doris day films you know so that's that's where i mostly know his his charmingness from and and based off of just your description i would really excited because i didn't get to see this one I would be really excited to see those two together because just the description of of the story and the fact that it's Howard Hawks, I could see like, all right, insert Cary Grant here, insert right. Audrey Hepburn here, insert someone like this could be Houseboat, Father Goose, any of those movies. But the fact that it is Rock Hudson and Paula Prentice, the charm is what is really winning me over with this story. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's it's like uh, you know, it's a uh, next generation Cary Grant and insert you know whoever one of his leading ladies right right um and yeah it's so funny rock hudson so what i was getting to like i didn't know how goddamn funny rock hudson was (laughs) and like um you know because he's uh, i don't know how tall he was but he looked like a you know a good six foot maybe even taller uh sized man and like he physically he he does some of the funniest shit i've ever seen in this movie. And, and I think uh, Jerry Lewis, in my opinion, Jerry Lewis is the funniest man of all time. Um, like there are two moments in man's favorite sport that rival like moments from the bellboy. Yeah. I am. I was like stunned. I was like, my God, this guy is his anyways. Well, he commits. Uh, like if you go back and watch yeah. pillow talk and send me no flowers, he does Pratt falls in those movies where it's like, how did he not just kill himself? That dude is tall and he just took a tumble over a couch, like Dick Van Dyke style. Like, right. He he actually did some really great physical comedy. Yeah. So I, you know, this makes me really excited. Cause I, you know, like I said, I've only seen maybe four rock Hudson movies. Okay. Well, I'm excited uh, to see this one for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to really get into his filmography this year. Is that the only comedy that we brought to the table? We've been talking about uh, yeah, such serious films. Comedy. Good for you. That, that I wasn't the one that brought it. <laughs> I just keep going darker and darker, apparently, on mine. <laughs> this probably is the darkest of the ones that I brought in the sense of... Because uh, it, it is, I would say, a psychological thriller slash horror film where I would say that the incident is more of just like a thriller, kind of slice-of-life thriller. Yeah. This is 1946's Bedlam. will tell you of its brightest adornment, Lord Mortimer. Come, reason, you've wit enough to say a word or two. What say you to this, Wilkes? A mad boy playing reason. That's a Tory joke for you. And only the Tories will laugh at it. The opposition wonders what the effect may be on that poor sick boy. The Tories care only for the jest. But we Whigs have some concern for the humanities. Do you hear that, Lil? Give them a chest and the answer with the political tirade. He said something about the boy. The effect. Go ask him. He'll make you a speech on the matter. To this pretty world. Uh, teaming up, one of my favorite pairs, Robson and Luton. You know, Ghost Ship is one of my favorite movies. And the only reason why I saw this film is because it was on the Blu-ray from uh, Paramount Classics that had Bedlam and Ghost Ship on it. So oh, yeah. I bought it for Ghost Ship, 
and then I watched Bedlam because it was on there. And I tell you what, I liked this better than Ghost Ship, which I was already a fan of. Boris Karloff delivers a performance that is unlike any performance I'd seen him do. He's not playing a monster here, and he's also not setting himself up as a caricature of himself. He has a real sinister menace to him. And before I get into the story, you've seen the film Quills, right, with Jeffrey Rush? Uh, No. It's about the Marquis de Sade. And Joaquin okay. Phoenix kind of plays this, this guy who's kind of in charge of the asylum where the Marquis de Sade is playing. And he has this kind of real uneasy sinister vibe to his performance and when i when i watched this it made me realize that oh they really took a lot from quills of quills from this film again this this blueprint this roadmap that we discover when we watch these old movies so there's an asylum called the bethlehem royal hospital which is a real hospital but it's called bedlam everyone calls it bedlam that's what they called it in real life and Karloff plays um, a guy named Master Sims, and he is the keeper of this, this asylum. And what he does is he goes to these fancy parties put on by like the monarchy, put on by politicians, these fancy parties, and he makes these, these poor inmates and these asylum people do these ridiculous performances, perform Midsummer Night's Dream, perform Shakespeare, perform almost like circus acts. And at one of these political functions, there is this progressive girl whose former tutor died while he was trying to escape Bedlam because he had been in prison in Bedlam. Who knows what for? I'm not going to give it away, but he died in the process. And so she already has this thing to Bedlam. She's like, we have to go and we have to put in some kind of monitoring system. We have to make sure that these people are treated fairly, they can't just be allowed to do this to people. But because Sims has power and he's in with the political party, they conspire to make her look like she's crazy and they confine her into Bedlam. So we have a very strong female character played by Anna Lee. She's fantastic. And it's one of those films where it's like you are afraid for her because she is in an asylum with all these disturbing, mentally ill people but as the film progresses, you realize that they really aren't that disturbing. They may be hideous in appearance. They may be frightened because they are constantly tortured and tormented all day by Boris Karloff's master Sims. But she is that inner peace and beauty that she brings these people. She is like the light at the end of the tunnel for some of them. And you get to see a lot of changes within them that leads to a very satisfying finale. But one of the things that happens is she has people on the outside that are trying to help her. So he is trying to get her lobotomized so she won't talk. That's kind of like the main thread of the story. Everything has to wrap up before she's lobotomized. What a great film. I, I, I was so surprised by it and I liked it from the second it started because it just starts on this dinner party. You see a man who's spray painted in gold and he almost suffocates because he is spray painted in gold. And Boris Karloff as Master Sims pretty much forces him to continue the performance. He doesn't care. So you're instantly introduced to how sinister and unempathetic 
of a character Boris Karloff is, and it just gets worse. I was so amazed by this film. Yeah, I uh, so earlier last year, I, I got to talk to Danny Perry for for an episode, and we talked about um, I Walked with a Zombie, and the, the whole reason for him writing, starting the cult movies books, is because he was going to write a book on Val Luton. He was going to be the Val Luton historian, and so he wrote his I Walked with a Zombie um, uh, essay, and then that's what he used as his pitch pack. and. Um, and, and it, of course the, the book didn't take off. So he decided he's going to do this book of essays. Anyways, <clears throat> I needed to come to the table, prepared, talk to the guy, uh, uh about whom the podcast I do is, <laughs> you know, yeah. is anyway. So, um, I watched all the Val Luton movies and, um, Ghost Ship ended up being my favorite. And when I told Danny that, he almost hung up on me. <laughs> um, but Bedlam is uh, is probably three behind uh, Cat People. Um, I, God, I really like this one. This, Like you're saying, uh, it's not your standard kind of Karloff behind makeup that we're right. used to, right, for Universal. Um, he's playing another one of these very sinister characters. When I walk away from a movie hating uh the actor uh because they're so evil that just means like this performance like was like shattering was earth shattering it was just it was so powerful and so bedlam ends and i'm like god boris karloff what what a devil yeah like i hate this guy and it speaks to his performance this might be it's probably my favorite karloff performance 100 percent is mine if you count Frankenstein, because it's not, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, no, he is delivering a performance in this movie. And I didn't realize this is based on a real institution. And last year, I also watched for the first time the Peter Brock movie, uh, Marat Saad, uh, which is uh, the, the whole title, The Persecution and Assassination of Jean-Paul Marat, as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Sherrington under the direction of the Marquis de Saad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very similar to this in that you have this warden who is out there like you know he's getting his donors and his coffers and like mm-hmm. you know getting that money so they can keep this for-profit prison or asylum alive um, so there's a good double idea for you Bedlam excellent I haven't seen that one it's on the list now <laughs> it's very strange uh, but really really good uh, but yeah Bedlam is you know, gosh, it's I I would not um, sneer at anyone who says this is their favorite Luton. This is their favorite Karloff. This is their favorite Robeson. Um, uh, but if I came across anyone that said Bedlam, yeah, you take it. I, I don't need that one. We got a problem here like this. It's a it's a powerful, powerful movie. Well, like I said, I'm really happy that you thought that Ghost Ship was your favorite, too, because it was mine until I saw this one. You know, it, yeah. it, Ghost Ship really spoke to me and this one spoke to me even stronger. And the fact that I only watched it because it was on the double disc Blu-ray. All right. We're kind of wrapping it up, man. You got one more left in the list, as do I. What is okay. that next one on your list? OK, so initially I told you it was going to be uh, Godard's Breathless, um, but that's sort of my my number one discovery of the entire year. So I, 
I put that on on our show. So yeah, sorry. That's great. I, I'm going to throw you a wild card here. This came in like, and this is one of the reasons I don't make discovery lists uh, until the last few days of December because yeah. I'm watching movies up and right. Um, and so I uh, I'm privileged enough to be able to get some advanced Blu-rays to review for F this movie. And um, <clears throat> Fran Simeone from formerly of Arrow Video has started his own company called Radiance Films, and they have a really great slate of uh, movies lined up for 2023. And I got an advanced copy of a Kosaku Yamashita movie called Big Time Gambling Boss. From 1968. And it's sort of a running joke on our show between Kristen and Vinny and I that like Japanese movies, especially Japanese period movies, I tend to find um, a little boring. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I know that's that's uh, not a popular opinion. I'm trying to rectify that, though. I'm trying to get into it. So 2023, I'm dedicating to uh, falling in love with Japanese period cinema. Um, and Big Time Gambling Boss is like this was... <laughs> This was the one I needed to kick my ass into gear. Um, so it stars Koji uh, Sarudu, and he is um, sort of, I don't know, second in command. What happens is at the beginning of the film, the boss of of um, these these clans for the, was it the triads or the Yakuza? I can't remember. It'd be uh, Yakuza probably, if it's Japanese. It'd be a Yakuza yeah. Japanese. Um like the boss of these little sects who run the gambling businesses, he um, gets sick and he um, ends up dying. And so they have to pick, they have to like elect who's going to be the new boss. And so it goes to uh, Koji Saruta and he says, no, I like, thank you, but I am not worthy. If we can find an interim, it should go to him. And everyone says, no, no, no. So they give it to another guy and you know, people are happy. But what turns, what is revealed pretty early on is that there's, you know, other people, I'm not going to reveal who, but pulling the puppet strings and they want to run the clan um, and, you know, get the money for themselves. And, you know, it's a, it's a whole greed thing. So Koji Saruta is put in the position between his friend and these other, like, you know, the, the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And um, it's shocking how many and who are killed in this movie. Like, it, there's one scene where it's like three of the main characters die in quick succession. And I was like, what? 
who's left? Like, is this Game of Thrones? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. It's, it was it was almost like the Red Wedding, right? Um, so, anyways, it is it's not a samurai picture, right? It's a it's a period Yakuza picture. Okay. Which I, I didn't even know was a thing. Um and you know, it takes place in uh nineteen thirty, the early nineteen thirties. And, you know, everyone's in, you know, traditional robes and everything. And it's, you know, there's no, it's, there's no guns or anything. Um, and it's not this like brutal action piece, but when the action does show up, it's like, holy shit. Um, it's sort of this um, liberally paced, uh, well, to, to use a, an oft uh, used word here, uh, pressure cooker again. Uh-huh. But it builds to, you know, and, and it's all Koji Saruta. He's feeling pressure from like 360 degrees around him. And um, so anyways, great in to period Japanese cinema for me. And like, I look at these types of movies like history lessons. Yeah. Because, you know, it, the the characters and the story might, you know, be fictional but a lot of it is playing on truth. Right. Um, and so I, that's why I love watching older movies because they, they you know, they're historical pieces. Um, but this is really cool. You know, a 1968 Japanese Yakuza film set in 1934. It's kind of strange. Yeah, no, it um, sounds great. But there, there are ways to find this. I mean, get the Blu-ray from radiance, of course, yeah. but, it's out there. You can you can find you can it find there. it. I mean, like I'm a big fan of of the 60s and 70s Yakuza movies, but that were like set in modern times, like uh, Sympathy for the Underdog, Vengeance is Mine. I like those ones, but I've never seen one set in the 1930s. So you've just got me excited even more for another film I haven't seen. I'm glad that you threw the wild card out there because honestly, Breathless is not my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> It's not, I'm learning. Wow. A lot of people don't like breathless. Uh, the, the more I tell people, they're like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's not my favorite. I mean, Which is- I, I, and I don't, again, I think you and I have the same opinion. We're like artists objective. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Exactly. I, I never think less of anyone for liking a movie. I don't like breathless is probably one of those films that I've tried so hard to like. I love the remake. I love Jim Bride's sure. remake from the 1980s. Yeah. I think it's fun as hell. But yeah, there's just something about I have a I have a problem with Godard's tendency to just wander, you know, and yeah, and sometimes that that just kind of it, I grow impatient. But I sure. see what he's doing, and I appreciate the the realist the realism, and I appreciate like the character driven stuff. I I always say that uh, Linkletter kind of tried to do that vibe with his before movies. You know, right. just the, the the people wandering. It's a wandering film. Sure. I got to be in the right state of mind for that kind of film. But definitely. I'm yeah. glad that you didn't put that on the list because this is exciting. <laughs> this is something I actually can't wait to go find the second yeah, game yeah. get done. Big time gambling boss. And and it uh, it definitely I mean, I, when I watched this, I went on a deep dive and like added like 30 uh 60s 50s or mostly 60s uh yakuza movies and i was like this is this is like a treasure trove here this is fascinating yeah. so i'm really excited about doing this, this awesome year. awesome awesome i can't wait to to check that out all right man we're gonna finish it off with my last one 
Um, this was the my favorite discovery of the year by far. My friend Mikey Jones has been on this classic show several times because he's such a, a historian of film. He had heard about this a long time ago from posters that he had found, but never knew about the movie. And I'll get into it once I kind of describe it. But the film is 1934's pre-code film, Double yes, Door. I know, Miss Van Vick. How do you do? How do you do? Mr. Uh, uh, Chase. Yes, that's right. Yes, some years since I've been in this house. All looks just the same. Is this what you came for, Mr. Chase? No, I uh, I have the Van Brett pearls here for the new Mrs. Uh... She's dressing for her wedding. Oh. I'll take charge of them. Yes, yes, quite so. Uh, no reason at all why I shouldn't hand them over to you. The uh, customary receipt, madam. We had them in storage since 1885. The year Rip's mother died. They belong to my mother, not to Rip's. I remember how delighted Mr. Van Brett was every time one of our agents found another pearl of the right size and color. And then we'd both sit down and examine the new Van Brett pearl over a glass of port or brandy. He told me a great deal about his life. He told me how the noise on Fifth Avenue prevented him from sleeping. That's why he built that mysterious sleeping room. Oh, but... Mysterious? What do you mean? Why, uh, uh, Mr. Van Brett told me that uh, he built a sort of um, a soundproof room. Ah, he was a wise man. So, the coming of this America. is a movie that does a lot of things that we weren't seeing at the time. It has a female antagonist who is an amazing antagonist. And before we get into the, the description of the movie, the actor's name is Mary Morris. She portrayed this role on Broadway and blew people away, frightened the hell out of them with his performance. <laughs> so when they bought the rights to this play to make a film out of it, they were planning on making her the female Boris Karloff. They had been doing makeup tests. They were doing all these photo stills of her as these different frightening characters. And she was kind of being built up to be the female Boris Karloff. Hmm. She never made a movie after this. Yeah. Decided that it wasn't for her. She went back to the stage. That film wasn't for her. So this is the only piece of cinema that we have with her in this role. But, if you get online, you dig into the old production stills, you can see what I'm talking about. They do these makeup tests. They do these amazing just face photo frames and profiles that are absolutely frightening. And this is what we got. We got this film. So unlike Holly and the Ivy, this is a family drama that goes a much different direction, but kind of has a, a, a similar build in the sense that this is a broken family. This has a patriarch who's passed away and has two spinster sisters, which kind of reminded me their dynamic is if uh, the the aunts from Arsenic and Old Lace, <laughs> if it wasn't a comedy and it went that direction, that kind of reminds me of like the, the <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> yeah. And then they have, much like Mortimer Brewster, this uh, adopted younger brother from a second marriage who really isn't looked on favorably by the sisters but was by the father because he was the next male in line. 
So the the matriarch, I guess you could say, the older sister, the spinster, played by Mary Morris, is in charge of the finances of this house, of this estate. And they are like slumlords. They're real estate owners of New York City. So they own a lot of property, but they hate the people. She is very, I hate the people. I hate these slums. We should just tear these houses down and build them up. Like she, she has no emotion for human life. It's all materialistic with her. Everything that is with the house, the money, the jewelry, everything. Now, one of the things about this house is that it had this little private room with a double door that her dad used to sleep in so he didn't have to hear the sound of traffic outside. And once he passed away, she turned it into essentially a vault that you can't get out of where she keeps all of her personal items in. What throws the story for a loop is this young man, the younger brother, he is getting married to an outsider. She was an assistant, a secretary, and she's common folk. And how dare this boy marry common folk? How dare she use our money? How dare she get the pearls that my dad picked for my mother and he gave them to the son of this other woman? It all turns into this really just jealous and vile attempt to break up this marriage. And when she realizes that she can't break up this marriage, that this guy loves her too much, she takes it one step further. And you have to watch the movie to find out how. Brisk, it's it's not even an hour and a half. It's barely over an hour. And it was based on a play. So I don't know if they took stuff out because most plays run pretty long. What we get out of this roughly over an hour film is amazing performances by Mary Morris and Revere as her sister, but Evelyn Venable as the main girl, as the, the wife who has to endure this constant torment from Mary Morris. She was the voice of the Blue Fairy in Pinocchio. And when oh my you God, I didn't know that. and when you listen to her speak, especially when she gets very emotional. You hear it and you feel it. So on my second watch after I knew that, I was like, oh my gosh. Like It sent shills up my spine because now I'm relating a childhood figure that's just stuck in my head to this woman who's just being destroyed by this vile, vile spinster. Oh, God, this is a great movie. (laughs) Yeah, it was... uh... I kept thinking of Mary Morris as, you know, this is like the... This isn't Susan Lucci playing uh, playing Ebby. Uh-huh. This is the female Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, and to hear that story about her, you know, trying to be made into the, the female version of Boris Karloff makes, one, complete sense. Uh, but two, it's tragic we didn't get that because she is so goddamn good. Talk about watching Boris Karloff in Bedlam and then the movie ends and you hate that that yes. man because of, of how well he portrayed that character this woman uh, my god just what what a miserable old biddy um and i was floored by this woman and the way that charles veter lights her always from below right always With from the- below shot from below lit from below and the very first shot of the movie in the opening credits which i you didn't see this that often in early films and opening credits. The opening credits take a break 
to open a set of doors and it zooms in just on her face staring at you. Oh, yeah. It gives you a jump scare before the film's even started. <laughs> and I knew that I was going to love this movie the second that happened. Yeah, it, man, it's just so fascinating how, um, you know, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, Evelyn Venable is sure the star of the movie, but let's be honest, this is Mary Morris's movie. It's Mary Morris. It's like Frankenstein is Boris Karloff's movie. This is right. this is Mary yes. Morris's movie. Exactly. There's going to be drama. There's going to be exposition. But at the end of the day, this is the driving force of the film. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, even just the way it's in her, like um, I was writing about Remember, uh, Remember My Name today. And Geraldine Chaplin is most terrifying in that movie in the silences. And Mary Morris is the same here. It's she's t- most terrifying in the silences with the lighting, with the angle of the camera, but also her posture. She's always leaning forward just a little bit mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. like she's ready to lunge at you. Right. Like an animal getting ready to attack. And and the way she man, she could the thing she could do with her face Um you know, we need more women. You know, I wish Hollywood would give women like that, um, you know, sort of because you never hear of women character actors. Right. Right. God, we we could have thousands of, of brilliant women character actors. Mary Morris being maybe the grandmother of them all. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. That's an interesting what? point you make, man. Like, as I'm thinking about it, like we when we see women character actors now, sadly, it's because they've aged out of being main roles. Jessica Lang, I would say, is a perfect example. Oh, yeah. You know, here, here's a character, here's an actress who was the main actress, the main star of these films, and now she's really embraced being the antagonist in pretty much anything she's in now. Now, does she enjoy doing that? I don't know, but she's right. owned it. And I, I feel that if they were to do some kind of remake or something like this, she would be that type of character I think they would need to bring some some levity to a project like this. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, man, Geraldine Chaplin, another one. The yeah. older she got, you know, she was, you know, home for the holidays is, is a perfect <laughs> example of her weirdo aunt character. Uh, yeah, man, this was... Another um, movie I'd never heard of, and I was so pleased to to be able to see because it was completely off my radar. Again, Letterbox two hundred and fifty eyes on this thing, mm-hmm. not many, but you know we it's it's podcasts that you know a lot of people get recommendations from nowadays, and so I love it when you when we get to talk about these movies that not many people have seen. Uh, to try to get more more eyes on them because it completely deserves uh, as much adulation as we could throw at it. 100%. I'm really impressed with these 10 films that we brought today, man, especially your wild card. You know, <laughs> I wasn't expecting the wild card, and I'm glad it was there because I, I rewatched Breathless for you, man. Oh, no. Was, but no, it's fine. Like, I, I'll rewatch a movie 100 times. There's movies. I have I have an episode coming up in in March where it's films that we grew up hating and then grew to love. Oh, you know, yeah. that's because I feel as like we were talking about movies aging with you and sure. as your tastes develop and change, your opinion changes. 
So maybe when I'm 60, I'll like Breathless, you know? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I think people got some homework to do, especially with all your discovery episodes that you've done over the last few weeks and put out. Um, I, I would definitely tell people to go listen to your last episode of um, The Harder They Come. That was a, a great episode. I love that movie, Underseen, and I really liked your conversation about it. For sure. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. It was a long time in the making, that one. So, um, yeah, we, you know, we have a good time talking about... Uh, you know, sometimes really popular movies, but more often than not, movies that we want to, you know, want more people to know about. 100%. So uh, what can we expect in 2023? We're both kicking off a new year. Yeah, we got, uh, we're wrapping up season four and we're going to start season five. Oh, probably in March. We'll probably kick that off. Uh, but the 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 exciting thing is that we're wrapping up the first book, the first hundred movies, and in the fall of 2023, we're getting into books two and three. Uh, so a whole new batch of movies. Um, I'm excited to look at a new list because I've been looking at that that list of 100 movies for, you know, for three years now. And yeah. it's like, ugh, okay, <laughs> let, let's get through. I've been waiting for this day. I'm I'm really excited about getting into the new batch here. Wrapping it up. Personally, I like two's lists of movies two is probably my most exciting list because those are films that i was kind of already familiar with more than some of the ones in in volume one and i'm excited to to listen to volume two yeah yeah miss it's gonna be a lot of fun cool cool well everyone thank you for joining us today on the cult worthy classic discovery episode we like i said we'll probably only put out maybe one or two episodes a month on this show since the cult worthy cinema podcast is the main show but don't let the age of a movie dissuade you from from experiencing it like you've heard today there's films that neither anthony and i had seen or heard of that if that's all we can think about after we watch them and then we're talking about them so hopefully you'll have that same experience as well social media all your stuff for the cult movies pod uh yeah the show is on twitter and instagram at cult movies pod and then uh i if if you care to you can find me on twitter instagram and letterbox at ak donnelly that's a-k-d-o-n-e-l-l-y you can also find his links on my website, thecultworthy.com, under the Cultworthy Partners page. Everyone, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you very soon. <laughs>